Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Be Bold America. I'm your host, Jill Cody, along with my co-host, Dr. Pettis Perry. Hey, Pettis, how are you up there in northern Washington? (laughs) (laughs) Could have been Minnesota. It could have been Minnesota, wherever you are. (laughs) I'm doing quite fine today, Jill. How are you? I'm great. And also, um, our guest today is bringing up a topic. You know, we've known each other, I don't know, over 20 years, and we've never talked about Star Trek. Um, are you a Trekker? I am a Trekker. Oh. I still watch many of the Star Trek iterations. <laughs> but, you know, I think for this show, Joe, we're going to need an intergalactic translator. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope I, our guests can uh, fulfill that role. Can help with that. That universal translator they had. Our program today is Demystifying Sharia and How It's Not Taking Over Our Country. Through scare tactics and deliberate misinformation campaigns, anti-Muslim propagandists insist wrongly that Sharia is a draconian and oppressive Islamic law that all Muslims must abide by. They circulate horror stories encouraging Americans to fear the takeover of Sharia law and even mounting anti-Sharia protests with no evidence that Sharia has taken over any part of our country. However, we did experience an attempted takeover of our government by Americans on January 6th. Interesting. It would be almost funny if it weren't so terrifyingly wrong. We must understand that Sharia scare tactics are manipulations to demonize Muslims as the other. Our future depends on it. Our bold guest today is Sumbul Ali Karamali. Sumbul is the author of Demystifying Sharia, What It Is, How It Works, and Why It's Not Taking Over Our Country. She is an award-winning author and popular speaker whose books, articles, blogs, and speaking events are her way of promoting intercultural understanding in the world. Sumbul and us have big things to do. Sumbul grew up in Southern California answering questions about Islam and Muslims with her degree in English from Stanford University, her law degree from the University of California at Davis, and her additional law degree in Islamic law from the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. She left the world of corporate law to start writing books to answer those very questions. For more information, please visit SumbulAliKaramali.com. Welcome, fellow Star Trekker, Sumbul, to Be Bold America. How are you? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I am fine. Thank you. And uh, I'm glad to hear there's another Trekkie on the call. Um, two, of going, two, two of us. Two of us. Two of you. Oh, yeah. Two of you. I'm glad. I'm, I'm, that's, this is exciting for me. Um, <laughs> so you'll understand that when I was growing up in Southern California, I often felt like um, I was the subject of first contact, you know? <laughs> which is, which is of course when you know the Star Trek Enterprise encounters an alien species and they don't know anything about them and they have to be wary and they follow protocols. Well, I felt like I was the alien species very often. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know that about Pettis that he was a trekker too, but I grew up with uh, with it as well, from the classic on to all of the programs and the movies. And I actually miss them. They felt like family. <laughs> yes. Well, um, 
Captain Kirk was my first crush. Oh, I, I watched when I was when I was a child. I was watching reruns, and um, he, you know, he was my hero. <laughs> he was your so. hero. <laughs> Yes. Well, Simba, to jumpstart our conversation, I thought it might be best to go over some definitions. Uh, what are some comic Islamic nouns and verbs that people should know, such as uh, the Quran or Sunnah or Hadith or Imam, Imam or anything else you think Ooh. would give listeners a basic vocabulary? Just short, few definitions of, of words that we'll be mm-hmm. using. Sure. There are so many, and I want to, first of all, say that I hope, Pettis, we don't need an intergalactic translator. <laughs> I mean, I think, I, think um, I, I go to, <laughs> so what I do is, is synthesize academic material for general readers. So my book isn't written for lawyers or for academics. It's written for general, the general audience. And um, and I, and it does actually have a lot of Star Trek examples and, and other other stories from everyday life. And so, um, so when I'm when I'm writing and, and talking as well, I don't um, I really try to avoid Arabic words or, or jargon or things that people um, don't understand. But um, just to I can give uh, like a little bit overview um, at the beginning. So. Um, Muslims, you know, Islam is the name of the religion, and Muslims are those who believe in Islam. And Islam means peace through, well, peace, but it means peace through submission to God. So Muslims are those who submit to God, and it's from the same Arabic root. Um, So there are about 1.7, 1.8 billion Muslims in the world, Islam is the second largest religion in the world, and uh, about a quarter of the world's population is Muslim. So there are quite a few of us. Um, Islam was born in the 7th century. Uh, in about 570, there was a man named Muhammad who was born in Mecca, in what is now Saudi Arabia. And um, when he was 40, he had a revelation, Muslims believe, a revelation from God. So he heard the voice of the angel Gabriel bringing the words of God to him. And I was telling a friend of mine this once um, who was Catholic, and she kept saying, the same angel Gabriel? The same one? <laughs> and yes, the same, the, the same angel Gabriel. Muslims actually believe um, in the Judeo-Christian worldview, so Islam accepts Judaism and Christianity as part of its own tradition. And and uh, Muhammad didn't, at first at least, think that he was preaching a new religion. He thought he was preaching the religion of Abraham or uh, the religion of one God, basically. So um, the words that the angel Gabriel brought to Muhammad the words of God that the angel Gabriel brought, Muhammad said out loud, and his followers wrote them down. And within 20 years of Muhammad's death, these bits of writings were gathered into one book called the Quran, which means recitation. And the Quran is uh, the Muslim holy book. It is, as one scholar described, a series or an outpouring of divine messages. It's not written in a narrative style the way that we expect novels to be written in, for example. It's more like poetry. 
And it does rhyme in places. So it's an unmetered verse, but it, it's more like an outpouring of divine messages. So that's the Quran. Um, that's the, the holy book for Muslims. Muslims also uh, follow the words and deeds of the Prophet as a, uh, as a religious text. And um, that is called the Sunnah, the words and deeds of the Prophet. So those are the primary sources of Islam. Um, Sharia itself is a really misunderstood word. Sh- shall I define yes. that briefly? Yes, of course. Okay. okay. So Sharia, um, literally, it's an Arabic word that literally means the road to the watering place. And if you're in the desert, of course, the road to the watering place is where you want to be. In religious terms, it's the the righteous path or the straight path. It's the road you take to quench your spiritual thirst. And um, the righteous path, in a way you can think of it as the way of God or the path of God. So for early Muslims in the 7th century, after Muhammad died, they were faced with the question, well, what is the way of God? What is Sharia? What is the path of God? What do we do to be on the way of God, on the path of God? So they had a couple clues. They looked at the Quran, the holy book, and they looked at the words and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad. And they looked for answers in those texts. If they didn't find them, then they started interpreting those texts to come up with more answers. And they filled thousands of thousands and thousands of books with opinions on interpretations of their religious texts. And this body of literature is called fiqh. There's, um, it, it's not law. It's not uh, black and white rules. It's a mass of opinions and debates and arguments and um, guidelines on how Muslims should behave in order to be on the path of God. So Sharia, literally, it means the the, the right path or the the, the the righteous path, but it can also refer to the Quran and the Sunnah, the words and deeds of the Prophet, and the Fiqh, which is all the religious interpretations. And as a whole, um, it's not law the way we think of law. So Sharia law is kind of a Western concept that that's not correct. Sharia, um, it's, it's a massive guidelines on how Muslims should behave. And it's not law the way we think of law, which is rigid and enforceable, um, instead, it's it's flexible and adaptable. If you say, what does the Sharia say on any particular subject? Usually, there's more than one answer. Uh, in fact, throughout the centuries, um, on all the issues that were argued about and debated about by Islamic scholars, only about 1% were agreed upon to the extent that there was a consensus. So that means that 99% of the issues that were raised didn't have a consensus on what the answer was to the question. So, which I think is just really interesting. <laughs> and, and also what that means, too, is that, is that Islamic scholars understood that there was all kinds of argumentation and opinions, and they recognized others' opinions as equally valid to their own. So on any question, like, can I get a divorce?, there were lots of different answers. And as a Muslim, I could decide, well, I want to go with that answer. That's mm-hmm. the scholar I want to, whose opinion I want to follow. So that is Sharia. It's a massive of religious guidelines. 
Well, uh, thank you. Thank you, Sumbo, for that, for the background, because that is very helpful. Of course, it was one of our questions, so I had to just check that off. (laughs) Now, Pettis, um, you have a question for Sumbo. I do. Um, I'm not sure exactly where to start, but maybe I'll start with the Sharia since we've kind of already opened that up. So who gets to decide uh, what principles are followed? Who's the decider? That's a great question. That's, that's a great question. Um, we don't have a pope in Islam, and the structure of Islam is much closer to Judaism. So I often have thought that that Islam is kind of right between Islam, uh, Christianity and Judaism. Um, for example, um, we believe in Jesus and Moses. Um, they're both two of our most revered prophets. Um, in fact, the Quran talks about Mary, the mother of Jesus, more than the Bible does. And uh, Muslims do believe in the virgin birth and the creation story, although they don't blame Eve for the fall from heaven. Um, they actually blame both Adam and Eve. And um, so it's it's very, it's very much a part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, but in structure, it is a lot more like Judaism. So there's no one person. There's no, um, there's no one decider. Nobody likes a pope. And there's no real hierarchy in Islam when it comes to, uh, to the answers. So in, there's Sunni Islam and there's Shia Islam. And Sunnis are 85% to 90% of the Muslim world. by far the majority, and in Sunni Islam, authority to say uh, what the rules are resides in the Islamic scholars. But again, there are lots of Islamic scholars, and they all have varying opinions. Now, Sambal, you're getting into a a future question that we have about the difference between the two. But first, we need to take a station break. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. Listen globally online from the ksqd.org website. Our topic today is demystifying Sharia and how it is not taking over our country. If you have ideas for the show, you may reach Pettis or me by emailing info at ksqd.org. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Aging is a state of mind, and members of Next Stage Productions use theirs to create and enjoy life after 50. With emphasis on having fun and self-worth, Next Stage provides professional performance and health and well-being opportunities for everyone, from acting, singing, storytelling, and dancing, to taiko drumming for Parkinson's patients. You'll find joy in newfound ways. Contact Next Stage Productions at nextstagesantacruz.org to be a part of this wonderful organization. Now, back to our bold and impressive guest, Sambal Ali Karamali, is an award-winning author and popular speaker whose books, articles, blogs, and speaking events are her way of promoting intercultural understanding in the world. Learn more about Sambal at SambalAliKaramali.com. So you were just touching on something, uh, Sambal, that I was going to ask, which is, uh, to me, a confusing issue, at least to me. What is the difference between Sunni, Shia, and Sufi? Okay, so as I said, about 85 to 90% of the Muslim world is Sunni, and 10 to 15% is Shia. 
everybody in the every Muslim in the world is either Sunni or Shia or a sub a subset thereof. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, the difference between Sunni and Shia is not theological. That means that there is no disagreement about God or the Prophet, and between the two groups, the only difference really is one of authority. So when Muhammad was alive, the Prophet Muhammad, he was the authority in Islam, right? He was the leader of the Muslims. But when he died, there was a discussion about who should be the next leader of the Muslim community. And one group said that the leader should stay in the family of the Prophet, and the other group said that the the leader should be elected by consensus. So the group... Um, that wanted consensus is the one that won, and that group would eventually be called Sunni Muslims, the one that wanted consensus. The group that wanted leadership to stay in the family of the Prophet would eventually be called the Shia. Um, And so for a while, in Shia Islam, leadership did stay in the family of the Prophet, but after about 15 generations, the, the the line of the prophet died out. And since then, authority has resided in the Shia Islamic scholars. So practically speaking, right now, authority resides in the Islamic scholars, either the Sunni ones or the Shia ones. And there are some small differences, you know, in, in the way that um, the Shia have more reverence for the descendants of the prophet. There's a little bit of a difference in the way you know, like we, a little bit of a difference in the form of prayer, for example, that the, there's more emphasis on certain holidays in the Shia tradition than in the Sunni tradition. So, but they're very, very similar. And um, although there's always tension between groups, always, because this is the human condition, right? We can't seem to be different without there being some tension. There was never um, any kind of kind of division like the, for example, the Catholic-Protestant division. There was never any inquisition in Islamic history or any kind of persecution on that scale. Um, it's really, I feel like it's it's been amplified since the Iraqi invasion of the, of, uh, sorry, the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, um, because Iraq was about a half-and-half Sunni-Shia state, and the invasion really cast everything into disarray, which we can, you know, talk about later. But um, it's only in recent years that I feel like we have this kind of overblown idea of the Sunni-Shia divide. Now, Sufis are not a sect of Islam. They are a way. So Sufism, rather, is a way. It's a way to be closer to God. And you can be a Sunni Muslim or a Shia Muslim, and you can be a Sufi. So what you do first is... um, you know, you're either a Shia Muslim or a Sunni Muslim, and then you follow the Sufi way in order to get closer to God. It's, it's been called mysticism in Islam. It's more um, of a emphasis on the spiritual nature rather than on the on the rules nature of Islam. Um, and so it's really interesting to me that sometimes people will say to me, oh, I'm a Sufi, but I'm not Muslim. Uh, and I just think, doesn't what? work. <laughs> And it's like it's cultural misappropriation in my view because because it's like saying, well, I'm Christian, but I I don't believe in Jesus. So <laughs> because um, you know, doesn't fit. It, it, 
it doesn't fit. It's a way. It's a way of being. It's a way of being closer to God. Well, um, also, I read in your book that Sunni and Shia have historically never engaged in campaigns of violence on the scale of the crusade, like the Catholic-Protestant conflict. I thought that was very fascinating yeah. because of what we're we think uh, here in the states. Yes. Well, I think it's really easy. I hear this all the time. Whenever there's a conflict overseas, it's really easy for commentators to say, oh, they've been at each other's throats for centuries. Uh, I hear it all the time with respect to disputes in Africa, in the Middle East, in the Balkans, in India. You know, it's it's a very lazy way of portraying a conflict because then you don't have to look into, into the underlying reasons. You don't have to look into whether this is a power struggle or a fight over infrastructure or um, a fight over resources. All you have to say is, oh, those groups, they've been fighting each other for centuries. And that's kind of what's mm-hmm. happened um, when peop- when the media or the public discourse um, discusses Sunnis and Shias lately. Well, Pettis, um, over to you. You have a question? I certainly do. So can you tell us a little bit about what role the mosques play in Islam? You know, what are their organizational or political structures within Islam? And, you know, how might they govern behaviors of followers if they do? Um, Okay. Well, you know, I grew up in Southern California and I grew up at a time and in a, in a neighborhood, in a place where there were not very many Muslims around and there were no mosques. And so um, initially, I mean, I, the first mosque that I went to was, was someone's garage in which, in which, you know, my parents and other parents kind of met and somebody who was learned would maybe talk. It was like a, maybe like a Bible study group, you know? Um, and then we we were promoted to a two-car garage at some point uh, when we got bigger, and then eventually a community center, and then eventually they bought a building and they made a mosque. So a mosque is not actually, um, it's not like a church. It's not an innately holy building. A mosque is, it's a gathering place. Traditionally in Islamic history, mosques not only had prayer spaces, but they had libraries and schools and hospitals attached to them. So, um, and essentially the mosque is, is a place where you can go and pray the um, collective prayer, the congregational prayer. Um, Muslims can pray all their prayers at home, but on Fridays they're supposed to go and pray uh, with other Muslims. And so the mosque is a place that has a prayer space where Muslims can go um, and pray. Now, in the Sunni tradition, um, well, actually, both in both Sunni and Shia, there's usually a religious leader attached to the mosque. When I was growing up, uh, we didn't have one, so there was uh, like one of my one of the acquaintances who happened to I think he was an accountant who happened to know some stuff. He just led the prayer, but he wasn't uh, an Islamic scholar. You know, he didn't he wasn't a cleric. He didn't have any particular knowledge of Islam academically. So when I was growing up, there was really nobody to ask questions of, except my dad, who luckily was kind of learned. So it was okay for me. But uh, still in the United States, I've gotten letters from people who have to drive five hours to go to a mosque. And that is kind of a problem because 
Number one, just because there's a religious leader at a mosque doesn't mean that that person is necessarily very well qualified or very learned. Uh, a religious leader at a mosque can just be somebody who leads the prayer. There, there has to be someone who leads the prayer to make sure everybody's praying in sync, and that can just be you know, someone like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who is a, a scholar or a mufti or a, you know, ayatollah or whatever you hear about. Um, so in the United States, I feel like it is a problem because there's, it's, a, it's hard to get answers. And unfortunately, what do young people do? They look at the Internet if they want answers. And there's all kinds of garbage on the Internet. You know, I, I'm sure you remember the Ground Zero Mosque hysteria. Yes. Do you remember this in yes. 2010? Mm-hmm. So there was a, you know, a, um, a group wanted to build an Islamic cultural center uh, several blocks away from from the from Ground Zero, and it was modeled on the Jewish community centers, the JCCs, all over the country. So okay. it was going to be a, a place with cooking classes and um, exercise rooms and a prayer space and multi-faith activities. And this is what got everyone so riled up. And I remember thinking, look, if you really want, um, if you're really so worried about radicalized Muslims, then you should allow this mosque to be built because this is exactly the kind of place that people need in order to be told um, what Islam is about and why it doesn't condone violence. And why it's not, you know, terrorism has always violated Islam. And if you don't have somebody there to tell people who need the answers, then, well, they go find them in terrible places sometimes. So that's, does that answer your question, Patty? Yeah. Yes, it does. And it's uh, it's also led me to think about how we demonize Muslims uh, and clerics that might be uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Muslims, uh, mm-hmm. as being these people that, uh, just radicalize young people so that they can go out and do damage. Uh, and yes. it's a, it's yes. a misportrayal, uh, and it's, it's part of what creates the division between people. Yes, and in fact, they have done studies where they have found that people who do go to the mosque, who do attend the mosque, are much less likely uh, to be to be radicalized um, because they do have people who are learned, who are who are giving them the answers, and they're learning about Islam. Um, strikingly, most of the people in ISIS, for example, don't have any clue what Islam is about. Uh, ISIS was formed with a lot of um, ex-Saddam Hussein officials, like ex-officials who were in the Saddam Hussein government who lost their power, and they wanted power. And so they formed ISIS. It was, you know, people who joined ISIS were often young men who had no jobs, who had no way of supporting their family, who were uh, having, you know, their lives falling apart because of, you know, because of the fighting in Iraq, um, especially after, after the U.S. invasion. So um, for, so it's not about religion. Violence is about, in a way, it's almost a lack of religion. So uh, Didi, let's see, Didier Francois was a French journalist who was with ISIS for 10 months, and he said that they never showed them the Quran. He said they never wanted to talk about the Quran. They wanted to talk about politics. And he said it wasn't about the Quran. 
Um, and the same, they, you know, when they interviewed, uh, an Oxford researcher interviewed ISIS like, prisoners and asked, basically tried to figure out what they knew about religion, and they knew very little. And my favorite story is they apprehended in England, they apprehended two uh, young men who were going off to join ISIS. And they found that the last two books these guys had ordered from Amazon were Islam for Dummies and Quran for Dummies. <laughs> I think we have people reading the books for dummies here, I too. think we had two dummies. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, you know, so terrorism, it's not about religion. It's about, you know, disenfranchised young people who have had, ter- you know, maybe bad personal experiences, who see the West as at war with Islam, which frankly is perpetuated by American politicians and pundits. Um, so they see, you know, the West is at war with Islam. Maybe they have a personal experience of discrimination. They go on the Internet. They, you know, see stuff written by ISIS-type people, and then and then they go off and uh, join ISIS, but first they order books like Islam for Dummies. <laughs> so that's the... That's the so that's, Sambal, that's really, it's, yeah. it's time for another break. Uh, it's just fascinating to talk to you, um, uh, but you. I need to watch the clock. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. In addition, if you'd like to be added to our news group, you may text Be Bold America at 22828. Text Be Bold America to 22828. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Tune in to KSQD Sunday at 6 p.m. for State of Mind, produced by local therapist Deborah Sloss. Gender-based violence affects one in three girls. Teens and college students are particularly vulnerable to domestic abuse, sexual violence, and dating violence. The coronavirus pandemic has led to a significant increase in calls to crisis lines and requests for support services. Last year, four women were killed in domestic violence homicides in Santa Cruz County. For survivors, the mental health impacts are substantial, including such symptoms as PTSD, depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicidal behavior. Listen to this show with a teen or young adult and help them to be more aware and prepared to prevent such violence. Join us for new understandings and seeds of possibility on State of Mind, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. here on K-Squid 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Sambo Ali Karmali, and our topic is Demystifying Sharia and How It's Not Taking Over Our Country. Sambo grew up in Southern California answering questions about Islam and Muslims and how she sees scare tactics and deliberate misinformation campaigns by anti-Muslim propagandists who insist wrongly that Sharia is a draconian and oppressive Islamic law. And that's why she wrote Demystifying Sharia, what it is, how it works, and why it's not taking over our country. And to add, I read uh, Sambo's book, and it is written for the layperson, just like me. And she's answering questions that Pettis and I both have. And Sambo, I have a follow-up question from our previous discussion. And that is, um, is the imam a religious leader, or is an imam an Islamic scholar? Uh, what does that um, word, that noun, that person mean? 
Mm-hmm. Well, just like a lot of Arabic words, like Sharia does not have one fixed meaning. Well, neither really does Imam. So an Imam can be anybody who leads the prayer at that at that particular venue. That can be the Imam. Oh, the Imam is going to lead the prayer. Um, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily very learned. An Imam can, can be a very learned scholar as well. Um, it can be a t- an honorific. So... Um, Somebody can be called, like Ayatollah Khomeini, for example. Radical as he was, he was a very high-level scholar, and sometimes he was addressed as Imam Khomeini. Um, He did good things, by the way, until he got into power, and power corrupts. So it was, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. he ended ended up doing awful things, and really for the pursuit of power. But, um, before that, he was a very learned scholar, and he, um, put together you know, lots of reforms and social programs for the poor in Iran, and uh, that's one reason, actually, he got into power, because the land, the landless poor supported him and the Islamic Network supported him. But um, anyway, anyway, he was a very learned scholar, but he was often called Imam Khomeini. So when you hear the word Imam, it can refer to any of those people, and you should understand that it's just kind of a... And honorific, and you don't know, it doesn't tell you um, how learned they might be. Well, that is very clarifying. Uh, thank you. And I, and I have another question before I hand it off to Pettis again. Um, you know, in Western culture, I, I feel we've been bombarded through messaging movies that a fatwa is a death sentence. But you wrote in your book, it (laughs) isn't. So please tell us what a fatwa actually is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I I have this story in the book. I was watching The Daily Show. Um, I think it was Trevor Noah by then. John Stewart had left, and I was watching The Daily Show. And Asif Manzi was on The Daily Show, and he's, he's a Muslim actor. And he used to be on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, one of the writers. And he was talking about what he, he was doing currently. And he said, oh, I'm on this show where I play this, um, I don't know who he played, like a playwright or something. And he said, and I play this, this character who gets a fatwa against him. And then he looked at the audience, the live audience, and said, oh, you guys know what a fatwa is? It's a death sentence. And I thought, no, wait a minute, wait no, a minute. No, 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 no. It's not a death sentence. That's how we're bombarded and, and in Western culture. Right. And here's a Muslim who's saying this, right? Oh, I mean, dear. Wait, he's like shooting it's like shooting all of us in the in the foot. And I was like, Oh Jeff, you're a Muslim. You should know better. But um a fatwa is something completely different. It's a non binding legal opinion by a recognized Islamic scholar. That's what it is. It's not a death sentence. It's not law. It's not a rule. It's a non-binding legal opinion by a recognized Islamic scholar. Can you give us an example that we might understand? Sure. Uh-huh. Sure. It's actually very, very, very similar to a legal opinion you get from a law firm. Now, ah. like if you if you have an if you have a question, and you want to go to a lawyer, and um, you just you just want you know to to take an action, but you just want them to write a letter giving you their legal opinion. Then that's kind of what a fatwa is because because it's a legal opinion. It's not binding, right? You just have this letter. It's not law. Uh, it's not binding. You don't have to follow this letter, um, but it's by a recognized. 
scholar. It's by a lawyer, someone who has a degree and has qualifications. And that's, that's what a fatwa is. So um, in Islamic history, what happened is that if I were someone who lived in Muslim land, say in the 8th century, um, and say I suppose I wanted to divorce my husband, I would go find a mufti, who is, which is one word for an Islamic scholar. I'd find an Islamic scholar, and I'd say, I want to get a divorce, and here is my situation, and can I get a divorce? And the Islamic scholar would look at all the sources. He would look to see if there was a consensus on the subject. He would look to see what other people had said. He would look to see what the Quran says, what the Sunnah says on the subject of divorce and my particular facts and my particular situation. And then he would look at all those things and... And, and, of course, he's a recognized Islamic scholar, and he would come up with an opinion on what he thought was the case. Like, he might say, yes, you can get a divorce under these circumstances, or no, you can't get a divorce unless. And he might give you an opinion, and that would be a fatwa. Now, would I be bound by that fatwa? No, I could go to another legal scholar and ask him the same question, and he might come up with a different answer. Both of these Islamic scholars would consider their fatwas to be equally valid. And I, as someone who wanted divorce, could choose between them. Maybe I would choose the one who said, yes, absolutely, you can get a divorce in this particular circumstance. You know, that's amazing. <laughs> different. <laughs> we have heard the definition of a fatwa and what it really is. So I'm so glad you shared that. Um, yeah, now, Pettis, well, I've been hoarding symbol a lot. You have a question? Oh, no. It's, this has been a great conversation, Jill, as yes. always. Um, well, I, well, I, guess I, I don't I have to say, though, so just, just an addendum, I sure. don't blame people for, for having this idea because it was really Khomeini who, who really just sort of misdefined fatwa, right? Ah. I mean, he... he issued this death sentence against Salman Rushdie for writing a book, which was... That's right. Not, this was not, this right. was not considered this was not considered a valid fatwa by most Islamic scholars in the world because he hadn't followed the right procedures. He, you can't just, in Islam, issue a death sentence. Everybody gets a fair trial, actually, from, from very, very early Islamic law. Everybody gets a fair trial. So it was not considered a valid fatwa, but that's the reason this word came into our... Um, consciousness and into our language, and so I, I don't blame people for having this this um, idea of it, but it's actually not the right definition. Words get twisted a lot, I think, in, over yeah, time. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> well, so, also, in, also, what happens is that it, our media unfortunately takes these Arabic words and uses them in a particular way, and in fact, hijacks absolutely. them. Absolutely. Know, Jihad is one of them. They use jihad interchangeably with terrorism, even though terrorism violates jihad. So it's, you know, unfortunately, Sharia is another one. Sharia so quickly is define as something different. So, Chumbo, quickly define jihad then. Okay, and I'm sorry, Pettis, I didn't, I didn't. Oh, no, no, it's okay. Oh, it's okay. We'll get to him. To <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just kick me to the corner. I'll just kick him to the corner. <laughs> No, I didn't read you. I just wanted to make sure. I just wanted to make that little point. No, thank you. Um, <laughs> jihad, yeah, it's so many, so many academics and, and scholars have asked the media to stop using jihad in this way, but um, everybody, you know, CNN, uh, BBC, they all use jihadist as synonymous with terrorist. The Economist, they all do this. Even I've written many, many letters to these organizations, and they, they won't stop because they don't care. Uh, jihad 
actually means to strive or to struggle. And sometimes it is um, to strive in the way of God. So it does not mean holy war, by the way. In Islam, war is not holy. It's either justified or unjustified. And the word for, for war in Islam is harb. It's not jihad. Jihad is struggle or strive. Um, and you can have a jihad for anything. You can have a jihad for education, a struggle for education, for example. Um, in, in Islam, there are a couple different kinds of jihad. There is um, what is called the greater jihad, which is the internal jihad to make yourself a better person. The, the Prophet famously came back um, one day and said that he had come back from the lesser jihad, which was fighting, and now he had to concentrate on the greater jihad, which was the this, this struggle to make yourself a better person. So that is the internal jihad. The external jihad is the struggle to make society a better place. So the internal jihad is to make yourself better. The external jihad is to make society better. And you can do this in a number of ways. You could have jihad by the word, which is using your words to persuade people, like writing letters to the editor, writing to your congresspeople. Um, there's jihad by the hands, which is, for example, uh, it's doing good works to make society a better place, like volunteering in a soup kitchen, for example. Um, and lastly, there's jihad by the sword, which is taking up arms in order to defend yourself or to overthrow an oppressor. So, jihad, and that's sometimes called military jihad, and that's, of course, what, what people are focusing on. But jihad by the sword is very, very limited. It's only in self-defense or to overthrow an oppressor. And even then, it has all kinds of limitations attached. It has to be declared by a worldwide uh, leader of the Muslim community, which we don't have. There's nobody like that. Um, there are stringent rules of jihad, like you cannot kill civilians, you cannot um, arbitrarily destroy property, you can't poison the water supply, you can't kill people who are running away, you can't kill women or children, you can't torture people, you can't uproot trees, you can't kill anybody taking refuge in a church or a synagogue or a mosque or other holy building. Um, so the rules of jihad are actually much more stringent than even our modern rules of international warfare. That is excellent, so, Sambal. Um, so I that, do. Yeah. Oh, but there's an, another one, too. So, so there's also, <laughs> and then final, those are, those are two. And then the third is the jihad of nonviolent resistance, which is also called the jihad of peace, uh, um, patient forbearance. And that is, that is, um, basically nonviolent resistance. And so in the, in the case of the early Muslims, they exercised nonviolent resistance by, uh, not fighting back against people who are persecuting them by continuing to to preach the religion by emigrating, you know, by sit-ins, that kind of thing. Well, Pettis, I'm going to take the break now and then let you have your question <laughs> when we're on the other side. You're uh, listening you to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM, Many Voices, One Station. Want a friend to hear this program? Ask them to subscribe for free to their favorite podcast platform, Apple, Google, Spotify, etc. To hear any of our Be Bold America programs, I'm your host, Jill Cody. 
Hello, K-Squared listeners. I'm Todd Hartman, and each weekday at 4 p.m., I bring you a different perspective on the news than you're likely to hear on most media outlets. Please join me on KSQD Santa Cruz, your ink spot on the dial for the Tom Hartman program. Heard now for the first time ever in the Monterey Bay area at 90.7 FM, weekdays at 4 p.m. That's progressive talking conversation with me, Tom Hartman, weekdays at 4 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. Tag, you're it. Today, our topic is demystifying Syria and how it's not taking over our country. And we're speaking with Sambal Ali Karamali. Sambal grew up in Southern California answering questions about Islam and Muslims with her friends. And now she's doing that for Pettis and me and all of you. Pettis? First of all, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, language oh, so you. in, uh, You're quite welcome. Language is so important because it carries meaning. And when you uh, confuse meaning, it creates problems. So the, uh, the fact that you're uh, helping us understand these terms is extremely important, I think, for our, our understanding uh, Islam uh, uh, more fully. I want to I just ask you a question to make a connection for me so I understand. But then I have a follow-up question with something a little bit different. So you were talking about a fatwa. And mm-hmm. my question is, is that what is becomes the the decree uh, when you are talking about Sharia? Is that what you mm-hmm. would receive if you had, you know, gone mm-hmm. uh, seeking a decision? Okay, so good question. That's a great question. So the way it works is that, um, so as I said, I might have a question and I would go to my local Islamic scholar and he would issue a fatwa. Other people would do the same thing all throughout Muslim lands. They would go to their local Islamic scholars who would issue fatwas. So there would be lots and lots of fatwas out there, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if a fatwa was disagreed with, then it would kind of fall by the wayside. Nobody would pay attention to it anymore. Or if it was considered invalid. You know, people, for example, like Ayatollah Khomeini's fatwa, nobody's doing that, right? Nobody else is issuing death sentences because that wasn't valid. So... It would just kind of fall by the wayside. Or if there were more people who agreed with the fatwa, it might become a minority opinion. If more people agree, like more, more Islamic scholars, I'm saying, if even more agree, then it might become a majority opinion. In very rare cases, less than 1%, I think, in, in uh, Islamic history, um, in very rare cases, if there was a consensus and almost everybody agreed with it, then it would, it would become a consensus. It would become... Um, Rules like the five pillars of Islam, which are agreed upon by everybody, the um, the basic tenets of Islam, and that's so, how so, it works. So fatwas are part of the Sharia system. Yeah, exactly. The sh- Sharia is just kind of a big, broad word for just sort of legal development of religious guidelines in Islam. Throughout history, it was a Sharia-based legal system that was, that operated, but Sharia itself is kind of sometimes called Islamic jurisprudence. It's just the system of developing the religious law. Okay, so and the fatwa is what's given or what's administered? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let me give you a, a more concrete example. So in Egypt just recently, maybe, I don't know, this is maybe 10 years ago, actually, there were... Um, 
two very high-level Sharia scholars. One was the Grand Mufti of Al-Azhar University, and the other was the head of the Supreme Court, who was a renowned Sharia scholar. They both entered into a public debate on whether women had to cover their hair, Muslim women had to cover their hair. And one said that uh, it was a religious duty to cover the hair, and the other said it was not a religious duty to cover the hair. And they both had lots and lots of documentation and uh, support for their positions. And it was a public debate, which was followed very uh, intensely. And um, so what do you do? Like, you have two high-level Islamic scholars who are saying different things, right? They're both giving fatwas mm-hmm. because they're giving their learned legal opinions. As a Muslim, I can say, you know what? Um, I agree with that one. So that's the one I'm going to follow. Uh, it, <laughs> So it brings choice. Yeah. Okay. I I have another question about Islam in the United States. Can you talk a a little bit about the nation of Islam and how um, they fit into the overarching uh, Islamic faith? And also, yeah. and also, Sambal, maybe um, uh, give that about two minutes, because we want to ask you uh, what listeners can keep doing, stop doing, and start doing to support oh, your dear. work. So, okay. <laughs> um, I'll try. So, okay. you know, some perspectives on the nation of Islam in the United States. Okay, so the nation of Islam it did not actually break off from Islam. It's the, the nation of Islam was a an early 20th century um, African-American nationalist movement that uh, the founder, his name is Drew Ali, actually, um, he, he the founder took bits of Christianity and bits of Islam and pretty much came up with his, his new religion and new, new movement. And that was called the Nation of Islam. Um, in the 1980s, most of the Nation of Islam converted to Sunni Islam, and that was largely because of Malcolm X, who was a black Muslim, as they called them, of the Nation of Islam. He went to Mecca, he did pilgrimage in Mecca, and he was so transformed that his wife said he went to Mecca as a black Muslim and came back a Muslim. So because of him, largely the Nation of Islam converted to Sunni Islam in the 1980s. A small group broke off and said no, they wanted to keep the original teachings of the Nation of Islam, and they're still called the Nation of Islam, and they're still led by Louis Farrakhan. But, um, but you know, they believe, the Nation of Islam, the beliefs were always very different from Islam itself. It wasn't the effect of Islam. It didn't come from Islam. It was an entirely independent movement. Thank you for that. Well, Sambal, for the listener, what can we keep doing to support your work. Oh, listen to programs like this one. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. um, I mean, keep supporting the voices in our country who are fostering intercultural understanding, right? And um, I do think education is and and knowledge is power. So, um, you know, support us by buying our books and listening to us speak and spreading the word, too, um, to, to other people who sometimes people, and I do this all the time, I, I, I take an action, but I forget to tell people about it. So that's another thing, spread the word, and, and let's try to, um, I mean, I love the, I love the way that, that there's a new awareness of Black Lives Matter and Asian, you know, hate against Asian Americans, and I think we need to keep supporting those voices and keep listening to those stories. Absolutely. So what can listeners stop doing? 
as a country, we need to stop supporting the Islamophobes. Um, I, as I talk in my book, there is a loose network of um, organizations and individuals that make a lot of money by promoting fear and misinformation about Muslims. And a lot of them are best-selling authors. So don't buy their books. <laughs> you know, if you... And stop, you know, listening to people who are fear-mongering about Muslims. And particularly, look at their credentials. A lot of these people don't have any credentials. They don't have any uh, education or expertise about Muslims. But they're making a lot of money um, promoting fear because it's a message that uh, that works. You know, it's confirmation bias. People want to hear um, that Muslims are the bad guys. It's an easy message. And, in fact, our government and police departments all over the country and private organizations often hire anti-Muslim advocates to teach uh, – Muslim – sorry, anti-Muslim activists to teach about Islam. It's like hiring anti-Semites to teach about Judaism. It doesn't make any sense. But um, – so we need to stop supporting those. And um, also I think um, – I think we need to – well, there's a lot of bias in our language, like you were saying, Pettis. Uh, there are lots of studies that show that in the Internet and on in artificial intelligence, there is there is bias. And in the media, certainly the framing of, of Muslims, there's a ton of bias. In fact, 90%, Georgetown University found that 90% of stories about Muslims in the media are in the context of violence. Oh, my. Well, if I only... You know, I mean, if I only heard about Buddhism in the context of violence, I would think Buddhists were violent too. Mm-hmm. So, so that's something that that we need to stop doing as a country. And then, lots of people. Yeah, then start doing. So I think um, start including Muslims in the in the DEI movement, the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. You know, there's. Uh, we're kind of left out of that. You know, people are talking about Black Lives Matter, which is wonderful. Um, they're talking about, you know, hatred against Asians, but there's very little talk about the discriminatory laws against Muslims and also the the hate crimes that have been undertaken um, against Muslims. Um, in 2015, there was an attack against a Muslim every 48 hours. Um, you were more likely to be killed because you were Muslim than by a Muslim. Um, just just lately, there there were, um, you know, I think in Canada, even the, in the last four years, 11 Muslims have been killed in attacks. Oh but there's very little information about that, right? Mosques have been attacked frequently. Um, there are lots of anti-mosque protests where people are trying to prevent mosques from being um, built. But there's very little about that in our media. And there's almost no outrage when it comes to... Um, you know, sort of preventing Muslims from their civil rights. It seems to me we have a lot of problem with people uh, that are hysterical. (laughs) They just get this hysteria and then they, they can't listen or learn or think anymore. And of course we've got some news networks that like to promote hysteria because it keeps the eyeballs on the screen. Thoughts? Yes. Yes, but and I have to say though, sometimes NPR will say the same thing as Fox. They just say it in a reasonable tone of voice. Mm-hmm. So, and often, even the Muslims I know, so we're all conditioned. It's very hard to to see stereotypes when they're normalized. And mm-hmm. even the Muslims I know, the, the Muslim Americans I know, they don't see the stereotypes either because they've also been conditioned. And 
um, that's a sh- you know that's a shame. And I like I said, I think knowledge is power. It's it's so important to get the right information. And all of my books are introductions to Islam and Muslims because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to explain Muslims to people. And I'm never saying that we're saints, right? I'm just saying that we're not the ogres of the Muslim, of the modern world. <laughs> Now, Sambal, have you uh, been on or already been on or planning to be on Dean Obladala's show on Sirius? I haven't been on his show. I would like to be on his show. I'll send him an uh, email. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I'll send him an email because I, I listen to him quite often. He's fighting that good fight that you're fighting, too, to just educate people and lower the temperature and move people out of hysteria to maybe being open to hear that um, a fatwa isn't a death sentence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, and and we and he's he's very funny. I think I think there are very few people who are doing are in my space, which is academics who are talking to the general audience. And often there are academics who don't really talk to the general audience, or else there are you know Muslims who don't know enough about Islam and Islamic law. Uh, to really be authoritative, so I'm I'm doing my best, and um, I, you know, I always, um, I always, I always think of Star Trek. Obviously, I know, and, and you're you such know, a pleasure I, to talk with too. And I know both Pettis and I want to give you a special thanks, um, and I also want to give a special thank you to Be Bold America's program engineer Emily Donham, and to KSQD's program director Howard Feldstein. And once again, give a huge thank you to our bold and impressive guest, Sambal Ali Karamali. Live long and prosper, Sambal. <laughs> thank you so much, and to both of you, too. <laughs> well, you are the gift today, so thank you. You are. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. On, bye-bye. On Sunday, August 15th on Be Bold America, we have a returning guest, Jeremy Lent. Our topic will be on his newly released book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe. Jeremy Lent is described by the Guardian's journalist, George Montbot, as one of the greatest thinkers of our age. Jeremy is an award-winning author and speaker whose work investigates the underlying causes of our civilization's existential crisis and explores pathways towards a life-affirming future. Born in London, England, Jeremy Lent received a B.A. in English Literature from Cambridge University, an M.B.A. from the University of Chicago, and was a former Internet Company CEO. Pettis and I will be discussing his new book, The Web of Meaning, that offers a coherent and intellectually solid foundation for a worldview based on connectedness that could lead humanity to a sustainable and flourishing future. So join us on Sunday, August 15th at 5 p.m. to hear The Web of Meaning or hear it later on the Be Bold America podcast. You're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz, many voices, one station. Listen worldwide online at ksqd.org. Stay tuned for State of Mind with Deborah Schloss. My name is Jill Cody. And I'm Dr. Pettis Perry. And thank you for listening to Be Bold America. Until next time, keep, stop, start. <laughs>